0: The first time I realised that things weren't good was when one of our older pilots said to me, Al, do you realise we've had 40 hot extractions in a row? That means going in there and pulling the SAS out under fire.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill me, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down the Frankfurt and see it on fire stuff blowing up everywhere there will be no surrender and then they had to fight an enemy in amongst women, we got children later, i could never often. not go back they were my find friends and scream, they felt you know, assembly. The like like she more did more. say you've changed soldier put
0: everything on the line to help one of our boys.
1: Alastair bridges had a career in the royal australian air force as a pilot he was deployed to fly helicopters in the vietnam war I spoke with Alistair about his time in the military, experiences in Vietnam, and his journey in life beyond the uniform. I'm Alex Lloyd, in Canberra today, in the home of Alistair Bridges. Alistair, thank you for coming on the podcast. And thank you too, Alex. Where did you grow up, Alistair? I was born in Scotland. (laughs) So was I.
0: Oh, Oh, excellent. I was wondering where that great name came from. My name also comes from Alexander, because my grandfather was Alexander, and we now use Alistair. But that's a bit of an aside. Born during the Second World War, at a time when my father was away dropping bombs on the Italians, and when I look at that, I think that it must have been a pretty upsetting time for them all. He didn't see me until six months after uh, he'd actually been shot down. So my mum and dad, I think, have got a much more interesting uh, experience in war than I have. And I've been trying to piece together bits and pieces of it over time. But in 1946, we uh, came out to Australia. Then growing up wise was Sydney,
1: Hobart, Melbourne, Sydney, Melbourne, joined the Air Force there. And then from there on... (laughs) Let's backtrack. I want to hear more about the wartime experiences of your parents.
0: Yes, I'd love to know a lot more. Unfortunately, they're not with us anymore. And typical, they really never talked about it. But Dad was flying uh, Wellington bombers. He joined the RAAF, went uh, through the Empire Air Training Scheme, ended up in Britain, seconded to 70 Squadron, on to uh, Wellingtons. He um, went out in 1944, it would have been. Was he a pilot, a gunner? Owned- he a pilot, yeah. Uh, 44, he um, ended up being uh, shot up by a uh, Messerschmitt 110, you know, one of the twin-engine German fighters, and he was bombing the Ploisti oil fields. He uh, lost an engine and had to divert into uh, Istanbul. They say it was a POW, but really it was in turn for a couple of weeks, and uh, one of the only few things he ever talked about, he said, it was one of the greatest times of my life, so I don't know what he got up to. <laughs> had a little holiday away from duties, by the sounds of it. It was. But, um, of course, in the meantime, I'd been born and you still hadn't uh, seen me yet. Oh, that was the last hurrah then. Yeah. (laughs) But, look, around the same time, and I can't tie it down either, my mother was in the air raid precaution in London and she was nearly killed by one of these V1 bombs. Biggest disappointment for me in my life, I think, was that I had a piece of that and it was stolen out of my car. Oh, you had a little shard of a V1 rocket. A little wow. piece of it, yes. And I used to show it to people on tours in the War Memorial. It was in a bag and foolishly. Like I was very tired one night, I left the garage door open and uh, somebody came in and helped themselves. That's awful. It was a shame. But Mum was still picking pieces of glass out of her head 20 years later. It's incredible, really. Wow. Yeah. So to me, uh, she, she is a real hero. But I didn't sort of aim to, to uh, look at that at that time because we didn't really know. You know what it's like. They um, don't talk. And, of course, it was. Uh, it must have been pretty tough for her. Dad came out a couple of months before us on a troop ship. Mum and I uh, came out on uh, oh, the Stirling Castle. It had to be tough because Mum was leaving uh, her Scottish family, not knowing whether she'd ever see them again. She never saw her father
1: again. She certainly got back to see her sisters. Hard going. I know it's a bit of speculation, but as you grew up looking back now... How do you think the wartime experiences shaped your parents? I honestly now believe my father suffered
0: from post-traumatic stress disorder. He could get very angry, not uh, with me or with my mother, but with other people who might in some way he would think were offending us. remember on one occasion um, we had a lady who lived in a block of flats in Sydney and uh, she deliberately squirted me with a a hose. I was only a little kid riding my bike, so... So I, and I just said, Oh, Dad, uh, Mrs. So and so squirted me. Well, he went crazy. He was going to smash down their door. And, and I honestly think that it, it, uh, those sorts of things related back uh, to the times that he had. But, you know, one good thing that did come out of that, 1989, the uh, Iron Curtain came down in Berlin. And that's when the uh, East Berliners were able to uh, get across into the West. And there was a big reunion of 70 Squadron, which Dad went over to. And that fighter pilot, Manfred, he was there and they met. Now, we can't obviously be absolutely certain, but they compared notes on this. um, Logbooks. Logbook, yes. The time, the date. And uh, Manfred said, and this Wellington just did this crazy thing in the pitch dark and dived for the ground. And I thought, I'm not going to follow it down there. (laughs) And that, that was it. And they became great friends, really good friends after that. Fantastic. It is, it is. Coming back to you, uh, did you have any siblings growing up? My uh, younger brother, eight years younger than me, yes. Were you too close growing up? Because it was eight years between us, not as close as that, because I'd be in high school and he was in primary school, but I did stick up from him a lot and that he appreciated. He likes to tell a story of some stage when we are in Hobart, going to school and this prefect uh, picked on my brother and <laughs> I basically told him off, <laughs> which uh, probably the prefect was right, I don't know, but... Uh, no, not with my brother. <laughs> Did you play any particular sport or have any hobbies as a child? Uh, all of those things. Sport, I started school in Sydney, so I learned rugby up there. Union? Uh, rugby union, yes. And uh, when we moved to Hobart... They were all playing TFL, Tasmanian Football League, uh, like VFL now AFL, of course. My dad uh, was very scornful of the aerial <laughs> ping pong; he didn't like it at all. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, I'm going to continue playing rugby. And we did have a school, a rugby team. We weren't terribly good, mainly because we only had two other schools to play against. No, you wouldn't have had much competition. No, then. Hutchins, Friends, and ours, and Virgils. <laughs> But on the hobby side my dad had always had a love of trains so uh, he started to introduce me to that and we my first trains was a hornby double o twin rail and they'd only just come through so then they were using three rail tracks so they had a the live wire was really the middle rail um so we got that i still got the stuff there unfortunately the boys weren't terribly interested when did you first find an interest in flying? I think that dates back again to Hobart. Of course, my dad had been a pilot, but that didn't really mean much to me at all. I wasn't terribly enthused about it. And he didn't talk about it in any case. But in Hobart, the local newspaper, the Mercury, had a, um, a flying scholarship thing going. And I talked my dad in to take me out to uh, have, a, have a go, which we did. And they said to me, oh, yes, you'd make an excellent pilot really all they wanted me to do was to join the club and spend money so I, I i can remember hassling dad on the way home and look how about giving me the money for this flying oh no no we can't do that and oh, i understand now of course and so that sort of went by the the wayside in the meantime the school uh, gave us uh, did some interviews with us on what we might be good at in the future and I was marked down as being a wool placer. knew nothing about sheep or wool or any of that sort of thing. And I've often wondered about taking that up. Where I would be today, but anyway. <laughs> so that that was sort of my first little inkling. But we had career on as well at that time, and. Uh My mates and I got interested in the little aeroplane jelly aeroplanes that they had. And these were Korean aeroplanes, Mustangs and vampires and all sorts of things like that. So we used to fly bombing raids against each other in the backyard. Perhaps it sort of grew from there. I didn't initially go into flying. My first job, and getting jobs then wasn't really too difficult. My first job was in an insurance agency in Melbourne, I lasted three weeks because I couldn't stand it. But apart from that, I'd also applied to BP to go in as a trainee chemist. And that was much more promising. I did two years at that. I did a bit of night school because I was never terribly academic. Moving from school to school just meant that I just didn't have the continuity there. And, and quite often we were moving between, not just at the beginning and the end of the year, but at other times as well. I'm using excuses, but I also suspect that um, some of the, uh, the teachers weren't really very capable. They'd rather use their fists than uh, try, to, uh, try to actually teach. So I did some night school in Melbourne, aimed at either going in as a chemist or to the Air Force. And once I got enough, I applied to the Air Force. Much to my amazement, they accepted me. So why did you choose the Air Force and not something commercial? Because I couldn't afford the commercial side. I wanted to learn how to fly. The Air Force would do that and pay me. And then after six years, I could get out and go to Mr Qantas and earn lots of money. (laughs) That was the idea. (laughs) Then why did you change your mind and stay in the Air Force? The Air Force, like any of the services, is a family. I absolutely loved it. And once my wife and I were married after Vietnam, neither of us wanted to leave. We uh, made fabulous friends, some of whom you know I've had for 50 years now. People that you rely on, you can turn to. You can talk about old times. We have the odd reunion, not that I'm great at getting to them. We also had the opportunity of travelling a bit. It meant that um, if you didn't like one particular job, then you can look forward to going to something else. Mind you, that never happened to me in the Air Force. I enjoyed everything that I did. And I've never been one of these partisan people that, uh, oh, Air Force is better than Army and uh, all this sort of stuff. I think that's nonsense. I think they're all important. I think the three services are fabulous. And I look in the War Memorial, particularly now, and I see these groups coming together, particularly our Federation Guard, who I've got a lot of time for. Their Army, Navy and Air Force. They're all getting on well together. There's no arguing. And it's really, you know,
1: it's great to see. But it'd be fair to say, Alastair, that you joined up for a fun career of flying. Absolutely. You weren't expecting war. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. No, that was a shock. Before we get to Vietnam... Tell me about learning to fly a helicopter.
0: We all went through exactly the same pilot's course, uh, starting at Point Cook on Winduers in my day, then over to Pierce over in Western Australia onto Vampires. Um, I actually loved the Vampire. It was a great, fun aeroplane to fly. My impression when I first had a fly was that I was sitting on a vacuum cleaner. It just had this gentle whoosh sort of sound about it. Very smooth. It was good. I loved it. I think I was rather lucky to get through pilot's course. Again, not terribly academic. I wasn't overly smart. But again, I could blame some of the instructors who really didn't know their thing either. But anyway, that's an aside. The big surprise to four of us was that on uh, graduation night, that's when we got our postings, and four of us were posted to RAF Base Fairbairn. Where's that? Canberra. What are you going to fly there? A desk. No, 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 you're going to be on helicopters. What? This never happened before. Never. The first group of uh, the people to go on the helicopters were uh, largely Korean veterans. They were very experienced people, flying various forms of jets, that type of thing, cameras, uh, meteors. And they were the first group. Suddenly, I guess the war had cranked itself up and we need uh, a bit of cannon fodder. Get the kids into it. (laughs) Came over to here, looked at the um, Iroquois itself, not knowing really anything about helicopters and how they operated. I remember it's got um, a couple of FM radio aerials for homing. They stick right out the front. And we all thought, these are some sort of guns, are not (laughs) they? No, they weren't. So that's all we really knew about these helicopters. Training itself, once you learn how to hover it and to get it down on the hard concrete without crashing and banging and grinding, it became fun. And it, it was uh, pretty
1: straightforward from there on. So if this is what flying helicopters is all about, yeah, that's that's OK. I mean, you've got all your limbs are working to steer this thing.
0: In the hover, definitely, yeah. When you're flying from point A to point B, you do it much as you would any aeroplane. The things that are connected are doing totally different things to an aeroplane, but you push the stick to the left, if you want to turn left, uh, put left rudder in, push forward if you want to dive. But in the hover, that's where you've got to really understand how these things work and what you do, because in the hover, you can easily lose control, particularly if it's a bit windy, crosswind, your feet will be working on the rudder, bars quite a bit, just to keep it pointing to where you want it to point, particularly when you're in a position where you're hovering over or amongst trees and you're doing some uh, winching work. You've also uh, got to be continuously adding and and reducing power. And you do that with a thing called the collective, which is the lever on the left. Um, And it sort of becomes the throttle doing all this sort of thing. It's,
1: uh, oh, we could get into the aerodynamics. I better not. Let's go past the technicalities. (laughs) But I wanted to illustrate just how complicated it is but it's a steep learning curve, you get past it. How do you feel when you find out you're then going to Vietnam?
0: Well, even at this stage, it hadn't occurred to us, or to me anyway, maybe the other the other chaps that had. I was a pretty naive young fellow. <laughs> yeah. I thought, this is fun, flying these helicopters, and then it started to dawn on me that, uh, well, what are, what are we doing with helicopters? We're operating in Vietnam. And, I you know, I'd never... This is silly, I know. Joining the Air Force, I'm going to learn how to fly. But it hadn't occurred to me that I'm joining the Air Force to go to war. And that certainly wasn't part of the plan. I guess I was a little bit worried about it, but not overly worried. Nothing terrible had happened at that stage. While I was under training, we had uh, the Long Tan Battle um, in August of 66. That uh, didn't really have much of a bearing on us. They didn't tell us much about it at all which is a bit crazy. I think part of the training would have been the lessons learned out of it. The lessons from that were incredible. These guys, I'm talking about our two helicopters, defied the boss and they flew in in the most appalling weather conditions at treetop level. Well, they had to or the troops would have
1: had no chance. That that was their belief, yeah. We've got to do it. We've got to look after these people. But they saved, I mean, along with the artillery and so many other aspects, of course, but they were integral to saving D Company. I agree. I agree. And that's the sort of thing that we should have been told about as well. But our training didn't touch on any of that. Well, they weren't going to teach you about the success of the rule breakers, perhaps, in training. Mm,
0: I don't know. I think they should have, because now when I look back on it, our training was all just outside the Canberra area, out the other side of in Delta 442 danger area, which is a danger area where anybody can go in and fly around the little aeroplanes and things. And it's Australia. You've got the odd uh, eucalypt uh, out there, so we'd hover up to a eucalypt and uh, we'd hover there and we'd lower somebody down on the winch and lift somebody up. Nothing like the jungle in Vietnam. Nothing like it. Where if you're over the jungle doing that, you can't see the ground. The only person who can is the fellow behind the pilot who's the crewman. And he is the one hanging right out, looking down through holes to see where the ground is and giving instructions to the pilot. often think it's sort of a bit similar to bomber
1: pilots in the Second World War where uh, the bomb aimer takes over. Left, left, right, right. Exactly, yeah. Before we get to the difficulties of flying in Vietnam itself, just uh, talk me through your first few days there, your transition. It started rather nicely. I had a night in
0: that uh, beautiful Raffles Hotel in Singapore and history was starting to hit me. I've always had an interest in history. It comes from my mother. So I was real pleased with that. Qantas had flown me up first class, which was fabulous. Pan American flew us across the Saigon and uh, there was no comparison between the two airlines. I'll to say that because Pan Am doesn't exist anymore anyway. We got in there, and one of our helicopters came to pick us up because there was, when I say we, there was also a Caribou pilot that came up with me as well. They, they picked us up now. These are old hands. They've been there for a while, looking forward to going home. They didn't give us any explanation on what was going on. Here's Tonsonut. This is the busiest airport in the world. Got to look out for this and watch out for that. I had to fly in and out there myself a few times later on. But it would have been help if they'd talked about it. Where are we going? Well, I don't know. Um, we'll just go and uh, land it at um, Tau, which is where Squadron was based. The introduction there was, uh, well, we'll drive you into town to the Villa Rana, which is where we stayed. At that stage, it changes a little bit later on. It was, I guess, a beautiful old French villa. The French people used to go there for um, relaxation. Uh, and this is back in the 50s when uh, the French were uh, had uh, Vietnam. But it wasn't a beautiful place when we were there. It had two squadrons. 35 was on the top floor, 9 squadron on the bottom floor. My room was actually a passageway which went from the back of the uh, villa to the front and there was two of us in there, one on either side. I had a bed. If I wanted a bit of uh, privacy, I pulled down the mosquito net, which you had to use in any case, and I had a locker and that was it. That was my room. (laughs) Now, was that bad? Well, next door to me there was, I can't remember, I think it was six pilots all in the same room. So they, they were really no better off. Than I was in any case. So that was basically the introduction of where you're going to be living for the next 12 months. It did change uh, after six months. We moved out to the airport into a nice new quarters which did make a difference. It was into flying pretty much right away, but we had engine problems at that stage. And eventually they decided they had to ground the fleet just to work out what the problem was. So we had a week off. And because I was so new there, I really wanted to get out there and and see what was going on. So I found that pretty frustrating. There's not much to do in this place when you're not flying. Very little to do, in fact. And all sorts of places were banned to go to. But I must admit that because I hadn't really been briefed on anything much, I did borrow the jeep and I went up to some of these places where you weren't supposed to go to and took some... Great pictures, old artillery mounts from the French again. Uh, I don't know if many of our people ever got up there. Uh, It's probably stupid of me. But nobody said, look, this this is dangerous. You never know what might happen. So the first few days weren't very enlightening. Once we got into the flying side, it was a matter of where we are in relation to Nui Dat, which was our task force headquarters. And I had no idea, even at this stage, that we were separated like that. But we did um, get out there and... uh, got to meet some of the army people and and what was going on. Initially uh, operating as a co-pilot, I just got to see what was happening.
1: Early on in your time in Vietnam, you are also confronted by a rather morbid tableau where there's a pile of burnt dead bodies, Viet Cong caught in tunnels by the Australians, but on the other side of that picture, Australian troops are just walking around smoking cigarettes, completely used to the normality. Yes, yes, you did hear about that
0: story. That was my first confrontation. As a young fellow. I've got the captain, a uh, real old chap. He was probably late 20s, <laughs> but that's how he looked. Experienced. Weathered. Yes. People in the back, they were looking forward to going home. They were getting close to their uh, 12 months time. So they were old hands. And uh, we've got uh, soldiers, and I know it was one of the regiments, but I can't remember which one now. I think five five RAR, but I might have that wrong. Um, They were about to go home as well. And, of course, they're old hands, they're used to it. And there, right next to us, a great pile of Vietnamese bodies, some of which were burnt. Now, I'm afraid it still affects me today. We were doing the right thing. These people have been down in tunnels, coming out at night. They were doing terrible things, certainly. Our people had, at incredible risk for themselves, gone down in there and and flushed them out, as how they put it. But... This was my first sight of a body, let alone a whole pile of them. I find it hard to express how I really felt about that. I was glad that uh, when we got away from there,
1: and uh, it's always stuck with me that. So it's. Mm. Not just the bodies, but also just, yeah, like you say, their old hands, it wasn't affecting them. Well, you're right. Yeah. Did that worry you that you might become as. You're right. It did worry me that uh, I may end up being
0: a bit like that as well, because I don't in any way blame any of the Australians there. They were doing their job. Now, I am grateful that I'm not aware of having ever shot anybody at all, but I manoeuvred the helicopter in a way to do that, because it was our job. And I, I, I don't know. I, we may well have uh, killed a couple of people who were Attacking a little village, so again doing the right thing. But I don't think I ever became like that, just nonchalant about it at all, because uh, I never liked the thought that uh, well, it was a Viet Cong down there, and here we are, we've got this big firefight on, and uh, and okay, the gunner's on the left, so we manoeuvre around there, and uh, in the meantime, he's disappeared into the jungle, and we don't know whether we got him or not. Today, with um, Vietnam as it is, I'm grateful if we didn't get him, because there's their
1: country. Yeah, it was hard. You were describing earlier how you were practicing the hovering near a eucalypt tree and you could see what was beneath you and how to lower a winch in and out and comparatively the jungle makes it a lot harder and you are doing it almost blind with needing the croon in the back. I mean, we're also not taking into account there when you're doing things like medical evacuations, that's time pressure, that's stressful, it's potentially under fire. Can you talk me through some of the flight missions you did? I'm sure some of it was quite gentle stuff, you know, taking people from A to B, and then sometimes that was uh, hairier as well.
0: Our helicopters were used to do anything and everything that a helicopter can be used for. The Americans um, had particular helicopters for medevac or uh, gunships or whatever, but uh, we just couldn't afford that. We only had eight helicopters, I think, when I first got up there. So we had to do everything. So that might mean a standard troop lift, where we'd usually end up with a whole lot of American helicopters as well. We'd go in in a great big formation, land somewhere in a big open area, and uh, the troops would be out, usually jumping out before you even hit the ground, lift off and uh, get out of there. Standard troop lift, you'd then go back usually the next day, later in the day or the next day to pick them up and bring them out. I never felt terribly concerned about those ones at all. You might come under fire, but not very often with those ones. I think it was more because the Viet Cong could see what was going on. There was an awful lot there, so they'd better get out of there themselves. We would uh, certainly take people around. I I can remember on one occasion taking our um, uh, task force commander around. He was visiting different parts of uh, where the army were and for some reason he really got stuck into me. I have no idea why and I never will know but my guess is that at that stage army and air force were um, at loggerheads over about some of the things that we were doing. Why is the air force uh, with their helicopters not allowed to give their full support to the army they're supposed to be there to supporting the air force well rubbish and this is how it um how the argument seemed to be going now look i i wasn't privy to any of it at all but we certainly got these rumors that and, and we had no doubt the people flying these helicopters our job was to support the army so whatever they wanted so i was a bit taken aback when uh, when he got stuck in the meat, but I think he might have had a a pretty bad argument uh, with the Air Force at some stage. Um, So that was one of the other things we
1: did. We uh, certainly did medical evacuations. Is there a specific uh, medical evacuation that stands out in your memory? The medical evacuations were very important.
0: Uh, To me, they were the most important things we did, and they would obviously be Australians, but sometimes they were civilians, and even the Viet Cong, and we didn't differentiate. If somebody was wounded, you brought them in. And I also have to make the point that our nurses didn't differentiate either. They were marvellous people. I can remember that when you'd go in, particularly into one of the hospitals, all the nurses would come out. And when I say all the nurses, I mean all the nurses. That includes those who'd finished their shift, they'd gone off to bed, but what expertise might be needed? Theirs might be. So they'd come out as well. One example was we were on dust-off standby, we called it, at Nui Dat, and uh, the call came in. We were told that we had a uh, company under fire. We had wounded. I got the rest of the team to get out to the helicopter and get it started. I got the directions on where to go. I jumped into the helicopter. and not even strapped in at this stage, and the co-pilot gets it airborne. We went as fast as we could, which, of course, for a helicopter isn't terribly fast, but we stayed just at treetop level. And as we got closer to the position, talk on the radio to the troops on the ground, get them to throw smoke. And I had a couple of occasions when uh, you'd say, I see blue, or whatever colour it was, and uh, the army would come back and say, wrong, uh, which meant that the Viet Cong had been listening in and they were also throwing smoke as well to try and obviously entice us over to where they were. So throw smoke again, this time we correctly identified it, and you just see it slowly filtering up through the trees. Uh, Head over towards that. By then we slowed right down to a slow hover. The crewman would be leaning out the right door. He's looking down through the trees, giving me directions, and eventually says, right, hold it there. The winch is on its way down. And on the end of the winch, we'd have this big uh, metal basket called a Stokes litter, and that was what we put the, um, the wounded into. So once it got down there, he's forever talking to me and telling me where we are. What we're doing how it's going we're also talking to the troops on the ground talking about you know have you got any more wounded do you need resupply how is the artillery going of course the artillery are firing into this area and they could be 10 10- kilometers away, they can't see the target at all. The co pilot listens to all of this and this is all about communication. And he's talking back to uh New Edat, to the artillery. We also have jets on these ones, our American jets above us, waiting to come in with all their horrible ordnance. And uh, our biggest fear with those was that we'd collide with one, so he'd keep talking to them, telling them what is going on as well. And we've got a gunner on the left side. He can't see the ground, he can't see anything at all. So he's doing the opposite. He's looking up at the main rotor and the tail rotor, and I'll never forget, every so often you'd hear main rotor clear, tail rotor clear. So I'm making sure I'm not going to get tangled up in the trees, which is fabulous. Then we got the word, uh, "Okay, I'm about to take the load, which was important because with an arm stuck outside one of the helicopter, you're uh, liable to lurch uh, over to the right and end up in the trees, so you have to have your control inputs ready for that. Ring him up, pull him aboard and uh, the noises still stay in my head as well as uh, the Stokes Slitter is, is pulled in. The door goes slam, closed and the crewman says, clear to go, and we're into full power, treetop level. Co-pilots now talking to these jets, we're coming out, we're turning left. And as we would do that, one occasion in particular on this one, the jets came in, dropped their ordnance so close to us that you could, in the helicopter, you could hear it You could feel the blast and you could feel the heat from it. And I thought, I hope that hasn't actually hit any of our people on the ground. It was awfully close. It didn't, thankfully. So from here on, we uh, then talked to Vang Tao, the uh, people uh, back there, the the medical people, and they said, well, this guy's pretty badly wounded, so uh, you'd better take him to the big hospital. um, I've forgotten the name of it now, but it wasn't far from Saigon, which is what we did. And a couple of weeks later, got a telephone call. And I was told this um, uh, wounded uh, soldier, he wants to thank the crew. So we went down there. This is in Town and it's funny how certain things stick in your mind. I can still remember the four of us standing around his bed there. We felt pretty sheepish because we'd just been doing our job, and we were only young kids anyway, ourselves. And this young fellow, he'd lost both of his legs, and he was looking to eight hours in a noisy, cold Hercules to Darwin, then another eight hours back to Sydney. Yeah, I've often wondered what happened to him, and it's not just him, there's so many of them that there's uh, so many that in, in the back in medical evacuations that, that we as pilots never got to see at all. The crewmen, the two crewmen in the back there, they weren't trained in any medical
1: techniques. They should have been. They uh, they saw people die. Well, oh, they need to be able to provide that first aid firsthand as they're helping people in the back logical, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, but they weren't given any of that sort of training. But they saw people die. I remember on one
0: occasion we were going as fast as we could to get to the hospital and the crewman said, look, Don't worry, he's passed away. Medical evacuations, what I think is most important with them is that uh, I think uh, today what we do is uh, what has come out of Vietnam and how we operate it. The communication, how they work together,
1: I think that is an important lesson. Let's talk about life back on base when you're not flying. How much downtime do you get? Do you get to relax? Do you get to go and have a chat with the nurses? What's base life like for you?
0: We don't really get much downtime. We didn't really, well I didn't really want it, I'm obviously talking for myself, because I found it incredibly boring. We did uh, have a sort of a surf ski which had a little keel on it and a stand-up sail on it and I loved getting out on that but I only got out twice and the second time I realised I got a long way out, had no life jackets, not much of a swimmer (laughs) and I thought no maybe this isn't such a good idea. That was the most fun that I had. Nurses, no, I never saw them. I, I, in fact, I don't even know where they actually lived, to be quite honest. And I think it was because we were all just too busy. You would get the odd day off, but as I said, you didn't really want it because you might, uh, you know, have put your feet up and read, which which I did a fair amount of. We'd uh, certainly in the evening uh, have a few beers. <laughs> in fact, I remember on one occasion uh, they were calling for pilots one evening because uh, one of our Army uh, aeroplanes had crashed and we needed search and rescue to go out on it. And I said, well, look, I've had a few beers. That's all right, we need somebody. So (laughs) I was out there for most of the rest of the night after having had these beers. I didn't find it. One of the other guys found the aeroplane eventually. And I think from memory, one was dead, but one was okay. They pulled him out. But, you know, you you do those, those sorts of things and I guess a bit of it is wartime compared with peacetime. And you were also doing flights for the SAS. The SAS frightened us very much. I've often reflected that hovering in amongst trees, picking up wounded, was probably just as dangerous because you couldn't see who was shooting at you, except at night time when the traces went past. But the SAS, quite often you could see. Now, the SAS, the way we'd operate with them is we'd have a briefing on at NUIDAT on the um, pad there, which was uh, next to the SAS hill. Usually five of them. We'd crew of four and we'd have one or two others to tell us what the objective was, where we were going, what we were going to do. By then, we're starting to get a bit tense. It was only when you're really into action that you de-tensed. But when you're sort of on the waiting game, that's when you got really, really tense. We'd take off, and when I say we, usually it was two. Initially it wasn't. Times changed, so I'll I'll talk about when we changed our tactics a bit. Two helicopters, and uh, I was never the lead one. I was always the one that had to do the dirty work. (laughs) So, again, at treetop level, going flat out, the lead would be behind us and well above us. And he could, from that position, eventually he could see the uh, D zone that we were going to go into, and he could see me down there. So he could then give directions, come right five degrees or something. Then they'd give a call as we were approaching, and that was the call to slow down, come over to the top, drop down into there, and as we got close to the ground, SA's are off and into the jungle. We never actually touched the ground because as they're getting off, the helicopter's getting lighter and lighter. Climb out of there and get the hell out of there as fast as we could. The idea was that the Viet Cong would think we'd just flown straight over. I'm not too sure that we actually achieved that. The first time I realised that things weren't good was when one of our older pilots said to me, Al, do you realise we've had 40 hot extractions in a row? That means going in there and pulling the SAS out under fire. I still don't believe, I find it hard to believe we'd had 40 of them in a row, but that put the wind up, and from here on, (laughs) we didn't want to do SAS insertion. And I think it put the wind up the SAS as well because. We started to come across a process where, as we were going into the pad, the uh, SAS would open fire behind you, um, now claiming they'd seen somebody. I must admit I hadn't, but then their, their eyes are going to be better than mine because I'm looking at where I'm going to land rather than what is there. Um, so it started to make us pretty jumpy indeed, and, and it's probably partly because of that or largely because of that that I, I have a big hearing problem as well because you can imagine their, uh, their guns are right behind the pilots' heads because of these um hot extraction things we used to after we dropped the uh sas and we'd go straight back to new edat there were so many of these other things then we decided well we'll, we'll change tactics a bit and we'll go and loiter which meant that we once we climbed out of there we'd go over to um, an area where hopefully the Viet Cong couldn't hear and we would just wait there to see if we get that scream to come and get us well i'm afraid we did get that scream quite a few times That was when you got really tense. You knew now these guys are actually under fire. We've got to go down into this uh, little pit in the ground and remembering these trees are about um, 30 metres high. It's only the size of our helicopter, so we've got no room to manoeuvre. Sit there on the ground while the uh, SAS come racing out and two occasions I remember just sitting there watching machines and firing at us. I have no idea how they missed us. <laughs> I, I really, I'm astounded. But once we get these guys in, and on one occasion, one of these, we had to, no option but to take off over the top of this machine gun. You get over the top of the trees, we look at each other, and we just break down laughing. God, we're out of there. Got a lot of tension to release. Incredible tension, yeah. When you're concentrating on flying that helicopter to get it in or get it out, it wasn't so bad. But it was the waiting period, waiting to go in, waiting on the ground for the SAS to get out of there. Come on, get out
1: of there. They were the times to get you. And you needed to be in there extracting them because in Vietnam, the point of the SAS was to be the phantoms of the jungle. And it was better if they didn't make a contact. It's just if they made observations, took the detail, reported back. So the fact that you would drop them in and they would sometimes get in these contacts that quickly, you had to get them out there to save them because it's only a five-man patrol and you don't know how many enemy they're coming up against. That's exactly right.
0: Early on, in my time there anyway, we didn't have too much of my hot extractions. And it became typical, put them in, go back a couple of days later and pick them up and take them out. But then it turned around. And and I think it was probably a build-up of the uh, Viet Cong getting closer to the Tet Offensive, uh, which was, what, February, I think, of uh, 68. So I think there was a build-up. I seem to recall uh, being uh, told that, uh, yeah, that, that might have been
1: happening. Not too sure that our intelligence was very good, though. Oh. <laughs> War is heavy, but it also has brevity. Tell me about some of the lighter, funnier moments you experienced.
0: Yes, OK, that's a good question. Did I have too many of those? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I certainly uh, enjoyed the company of my mates, um, particularly as four of us were off the same pilot's course together. Mick Haxel who uh, won a Distinguished Flying Cross. I actually went in to provide any assistance after he'd been shot up in that. He uh, became my best man when we got back to Australia. And uh, we're still friends. He still lives here in in Canberra, as we do. But, you know, we we did a bit of a a celebration for that. Not, Not a great deal, I mean. You, you again, you, you couldn't sort of get yourself mad, crazy drunk or something because you had to be up at the crack of dawn the next morning and go fly. Davo was a good friend of mine, uh, Peter Davidson. Uh, he um, was also off the, uh, the same pilot's course and helicopter course. As I said, I, I don't really have too much in the way of light memories. I, I was engaged to be married, uh, so it was a bit tough um, to be uh, away for all of that time. Well, in fact, one of the, it's not a good thing at all, but one of the things was when I went to Vietnam, we seemed to have our wars run in sort of generations. The gap between the First and Second World War was 21 years. So those going off to the Second World War, are the sons of those from the First World War. And I often think of the mothers waving goodbye to their sons and thinking, "Will I ever see them again. gap between the Second World War and Vietnam for me was about 21 years. My mother, Scottish woman, uh, she's over in Scotland visiting her uh, sisters and uh, she hears I'm going. She immediately jumps on an aeroplane, hurtles home to see me, which she failed to do by one day. And I couldn't understand why she was doing this. But now I understand that uh, she was frightened she wouldn't see me again. So these are family things, and and I I guess I don't have any fun, uh, happy sort of memories, apart from the broad one of working together and really getting the job done, and we certainly did that. Well, she did get to see you again. Tell me about your return home. Well that was um, a happy homecoming. I met my fiance and she was there with her mum and dad. My parents were there as well and uh, we were able to enjoy things in Sydney. They gave you a pre-embarkation post-embarkation leave. I can't remember what it was a couple of weeks or something. I can remember Sandra and I going down to Circular Quay to a, a night spot down there and we would we danced the night away My father-in-law, Milne Bay uh, veteran, he was very much involved in uh, the RSL, so he, uh, obviously I had to join that uh, for his sake. They welcomed me, quite different to some of the other stories that I've heard of people not being welcomed, but they certainly uh, welcomed me and I'm still a member of of that uh, Parramatta RSL. We were really looking forward to our wedding. Only in July, got home in March. After my little bit of pre-embarkation, I went back to Canberra to uh, five squadron on flying helicopters there, and now we're sort of educating the others that are coming through. Sandra's up in uh, Sydney with the parents, and I remember we had a petrol strike... (laughs) And I had to drive that day up for my wedding. <laughs> so uh, this was a, a bit bit of a worry. And The old car that I had was a Borgwood Isabella, you've never heard of it, I bet. It chewed up fuel like nobody's business. And I remember driving up to Sydney, stopping at every possible little garage on the way to uh, just keep topping it up. But we got there. That was all right. One of the amazing things about our wedding, though, was that uh, the Air Force flew a couple of helicopters up from Canberra, full of Air Force people. And they formed an honor guard for us, and that was so beautiful. I wasn't expecting anything like that, mind you. We weren't expecting to put them up at the uh, <laughs> at the feast afterwards either. But uh, gee, that was nice. That was so good. So the the wedding was great. And uh, July this year, we
1: celebrate fifty years. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. So you felt welcomed at the RSL. Watching then, I guess from the sidelines, the media and growing public to to the war. What was your reaction to that?
0: Yes, that's, that's an entry side to it. Again, Mick Haxel, um, he was spat on in town here as he went through and, and you know, similar to uh, soldiers marching through Sydney and having red paint, right. same sort of thing. I didn't see a great deal of it. More the, the negative to me was that now I've got a couple of ribbons because I've been to Vietnam, so there were a couple of ribbons. Uh, those who hadn't been never, ever commented on it. It never occurred to me at the time, but it's occurred to me since. Why why didn't they say, what are the ribbons for? We went on an exchange to the States a few years later. And they were very interested in, here's this Aussie with just two ribbons and look, we've got a chest full. (laughs) That's a bit of a different uh, conversation (laughs) with American ribbons. It is, yes. Uh, But that was a marvellous time. But no, I I felt more concerned that uh, Australian military who hadn't been to Vietnam weren't querying what these ribbons were. Because, you know, we had a lot of uh, Korean veterans as well. I got to recognise what the different uh, medals were. So I I think it, it didn't Sort of affect me or worry me at all, but I just wonder why people didn't seem to have any curiosity. I certainly was a bit cranky about what I saw on TV, and I thought they were getting it wrong because I knew that in Vietnam, Phuc Thuy Province, we were very much working on a heart and mind process where we were building schools and flying uh, the locals to their markets, which was a bit unpleasant because they have pigs and chooks and things in there, and it's a bit smelly. But you were
1: um, proud of your work?
0: <laughs> yes. We were to help people. I knew, I, I had no doubt that we weren't into uh, the terrible things that we saw on television. So that, that was a bit of
1: a uh, an unfortunate way to portray this is what the Australian's doing. No, it not Well, you stay in the forces to keep the flying dream going. <laughs> How long did you stay in the Air Force for? 23 years after uh, helicopters and, and our big worry
0: was that none of us would ever get off helicopters <laughs> well in fact i was the only one that did uh, the others uh, spent the rest of their lives on them i applied to fly canberra bombers and they were about to post me and i got a telephone call to say look we're bringing up the cameras out of vietnam so we don't need any more pilots but you have said that you want to go to vietnam again which You had to say, because I wanted to fly uh, Canberras up in Vietnam. So we're going to put you on a caribou. Well, that wasn't the intention. But anyway, oh, we were actually in Darwin at this time doing search and rescue up there. That was, that was great. But anyhow, they post us down to um, to Richmond, onto the uh, Caribou. I found then that I was on an aeroplane which had amazing capabilities. Now, you get down to 40 knots, which is <laughs> just about as slow as hovering in a, in a helicopter. I actually got a bit concerned about that because I knew that a helicopter, fine, at zero knots, but a Caribou, uh, no. <laughs> We went into incredibly small airstrips. Uh, I had a couple of stints up in New Guinea, one that really stood out. You, uh, to get into this airstrip, you had to fly up a valley, and it was a curving valley, so you couldn't see the airstrip to start off with. But there was a goat track on the right, and you got your, your right wing, wingtip, just on that goat track, and you kept ascending, following the goat track until it disappeared, and then you looked on the left, and there was your airstrip. So a hard left turn, all flapped down, crash onto the ground, and then you had to go full power to get to the top of the estuary because it's so steep, this thing. And if you took off and you turned left, you were dead. You couldn't get out of it, so you had to make absolutely sure that you didn't do that either. So, you know, it was challenging, it was exciting sort of stuff on the old caribou. Caribous, what did I do after that? They posted me onto a um, oh, Hawker Siddeley 748, HS748, 748, very much similar to a Fokker Friendship, uh, those types of aeroplanes, a twin turboprop. This was down at Sale in Victoria, which was the place we really loved. My daughter got to go from year one to year six all at the same school. We were training navigators down there sort of got a little bit boring sometimes. You go away out to somewhere in the middle of Australia, in the middle of the night, turn around and come all the way back again. But there were challenges because sail was prone to having fog come in. So we'd be forever talking back. We had two excellent meteorologists down there talking back to them uh, and we'd listen to the dry bulb and the wet bulb and how close are they getting and, oh, is it going to be foggy. We only had one occasion, I remember myself anyway, where we had to divert into uh, Melbourne and uh, overnight there. But I did a few other things. Flying VIPs around, particularly I was at that stage a right-hand seat check captain. So I used to fly with some of our senior officers and they'd jump into the left seat and do the flying. And I was there sort of more as, as a safety pilot than anything else. Then after that, she sort of started to become groundwork into joint intelligence, which was here in Canberra. First time I sort of got into that side of things, my first ground job, and I found that really interesting. So I, I really did, did love that, that work. And after that, they posted us to the States into a posting which was um, air safety, basically. It was the Air Force Inspection and Safety Centre, it's called. Uh, it was at Norton Air Force Base in California. It's since uh, shifted. That was pretty useful to me because when I got there, I found that there's so much going on in the States and they were having some pretty nasty accidents. They uh, had lots of excellent training courses and I thought, I can get onto these things. These are skills I can bring home to Australia. So I did. I got onto quite a number of quite incredible courses and uh, I think I annoyed a lot of the Americans I was with because I was always off on these things, but the Americans were great. I've got a lot of time for them. My daughter and my wife, I had to chain both of them up to try and bring them home at the end of our posting because they loved it so much. Incidentally, uh, my daughter did uh, year 11 and a half of year 12 while we were there. And uh, when we got home, the uh, high school here said, no, 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 we can't recognise any of that. So she did year 11 and 12 in one year, topped the school, and she ended up uh, wow. with honours at uni. Yeah, so that's why I say she's much smarter than my wife and I. <laughs> But look, after that, I came back to Australia, went to uh, Russell offices to, uh, it was called DAFs in those days, uh, Air Force Flying Safety. I did a, a couple of accident investigations there,
1: then left, unfortunately. Did you have any difficulties after the war or do you feel you acclimatised and adjusted pretty well?
0: I, um, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder about five years ago. And when I told both my wife and my brother, they both said, oh, we knew you had problems. Well, I didn't. What actually set me off, the lady next door moved in with a dog which used to bark real loud and really viciously, and and that sort of set it off. I now react badly to very loud noises, motorbikes, uh, for example, pneumatic drills, these sorts of things. For instance, always weary as I'm going around looking for these because these sudden noises can just cause me to collapse, die for comfort, get away from it. Sydney, I don't like being in. Uh, We spend a lot of time in in the CBD. Noises from
1: trucks, particularly those buses. Wow,
0: they make a loud noise. Was this
1: soon after the war or it's more recent? No,
0: it's the last five years it's really started to hit me. But as I said, others had recognised some sort of a problem. And when I look back now, I can see how uh, I could bubble to the surface pretty quickly. My tolerance wasn't there. I was closer to the bubble point than most other people are, I guess. I um, approached DVA about it. They were magnificent, and I'll never say a word against them. They really gave me a lot of help, and I really feel that, that I'm pretty much recovered from it. Uh, loud uh, noises are still going to upset me, but I'm aware of what's happening now, and, uh, and I know what to do
1: about it. It hasn't really impeded your life then, which is fantastic.
0: Not really, no.
1: No, I don't think so. Tell me about your work today at the Australian War Memorial. That's my
0: great love, I have to say. And I think it has partly helped me with um, post-traumatic stress as well. Just go back a little bit. When I retired, I retired because I loved my uh, first grandson and I was missing him. My my job then uh, in civil aviation meant that I was not at home very much at all. So uh, my wife got a bit fed up with me and she said, look, why don't you give the war memorial a go? Please get out of the house. Yeah, basically, yeah. I'd been looking at all sorts of other things, like legacy. Um, I was doing things with St Vincent de Paul, people that I I found it a little bit hard to relate to. So I went along there. David Taylor, my uh, first instructor, he just got me in that very first night. And I found that here I am, in the evening, in a place that is really very special, being lectured to or taught by the world's most eminent historians on Australian history and particularly on Australian war history. And, and it just, it, it started dawning on me, this is incredible stuff that I'm getting. So uh, I stuck it and kept on going since then i've run the training courses myself <laughs> which was very useful because it meant that i was actually hearing all these stories again from his, our historian but i started off then as a volunteer guide i love taking people around in there um i remember on one occasion saying uh, to our trainees look you might see a young lady walking along the roll of honor in a very short skirt and you will think that's not really appropriate and then you need to imagine 102,000 pairs of eyes watching her as she goes past. (laughs) So that's how I like to put it. What isn't appropriate to us can be appropriate to others as well. We do get all sorts come in there. But I found that once I finished a a tour with them, look, I had two tours yesterday. They were great. First one, I only had two people, and I like a little one. We went down into the Vietnam Gallery, and it was full of Vietnam veterans for the anniversary of Coral and Balmoral. And I thought, well, well, let's have a chat with them. So I took uh, my group over, just two, and we uh, talked about them. And, and they loved it. They picked up on, on this as well. And, and I got positive back, you know, people saying to me, well, thank you, flying helicopters, you picked us up, got us out of there. Well, today is the 50-year anniversary of Coral Balmoral. It is today, yes, exactly. And I was h- thankfully back home by then. <laughs> After I'd been uh, doing tours for about six years, two of the people in education approached me and asked me if I'd like to do that. I said, yeah, sure, I'll give it a go. But only as a volunteer, because that's what I am. I said, I don't know, we've got to pay you. (laughs) If you have to. (laughs) Um, So uh, I love it. I love it. Another example, tomorrow I've got a year one and two. So we're talking about, you know, six to eight-year-old kids. Now, how do you do that? Well, you tell them little fun stories. The War Memorial is full of fun stories to tell. And then straight after that, i got years 10. So uh, again, we talk about 16, 17-year-olds perhaps. That's going to be a totally different approach. And in fact, anything in between, you moderate what you're doing to fit the people. So for children, I don't give the real horror stories in there. But I've got some fabulous stories that I can
1: tell them. But you're educating young minds and that's introducing right. them to history and their heritage.
0: That's right. And we're trying to get them to appreciate how, well, that's what I'm trying to do, how important history is to learn from it. So they can pick up and say, hmm, when I was in the war memorial, now look, I heard that story about the, that uh, matron, Grace Wilson, and what she did and the incredible award she got for it. Maybe I could learn a bit from that. Maybe I could do a bit of research. That's the sort of thing that I'd like to get some of the the youngsters to do. I think I'm getting there too because I do a lot of wreath-layings and I really like doing them with the year 10 or 12s because they ask very grown-up questions and they have very grown-up ideas. And I asked one of them recently what she was thinking about while the last post was being played.
1: And she said, I've just been grateful for our country. Beautiful, isn't it? (laughs) Using your own experiences of war as well, I'm sure, or your own familiarity with it, it's going to be putting a new lens on your memories and your history. So from the perspective of sharing this with children and educating them in the war memorial about our wider history and the conflict you saw as part of that, how do you look back on your time in Vietnam today? A waste of time. The Viet Cong
0: one, that, that's pretty obvious. We were trying to help people. We did have women who uh, helped with our washing and that sort of thing, just trying to earn a bit of money, that's all. The way they were treated in the Tet Offences was absolutely appalling. How did we help? We didn't. We didn't do anything. We didn't know what was going on, of course, but uh, nevertheless, um, we weren't able to prevent any of that. So I think we would have been better off if we'd never gone there in the first place. I know there was a concern about... um,
1: The domino effect.
0: Yeah, well, as Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore said, ask one of the dominoes, and they were one of the dominoes. He was worried about it. But that hasn't happened. Maybe it would have, who knows? But I think perhaps we shouldn't have been there at all. I'm proud of what we as Australians did, how we were supporting people and what we were doing. But we were a very small force in there, and we really couldn't do much on our own. So I would like to think perhaps the legacy from that is uh, a learning process uh, where we think rather hard about these things. I know that similar things have been said about Afghanistan, and I've certainly talked to many of the people who have been in Afghanistan. I'm not sure that we're really being helpful there. I hope we are. I haven't been there, so I
1: don't really know. I can only talk about the one place I was. You have the great privilege of working in one of the finest institutions in the country and one of the most amazing memorials and museums and archives in the world. Taking these young minds around there and seeing them soak up this knowledge and history, I can imagine is just so rewarding and gratifying. What hope do you have then for future generations of Australians as we can take this rich resource of knowledge and history and try to use those lessons and learn going forward?
0: You know, I have a lot of hope. I see the brightness in their eyes when you're telling them a story, and uh, they get and you get to the punchline. Oh, yes, we see what you're getting at there. Look, I, I never ever get anything negative from them. Boys tend to come in and race around and want, want to talk about guns. So I tell them about nurses and things like that they're not expecting it. <laughs> it's interesting how they'll gather around they'll come in close to you and they will listen to and and they'll be looking at you they're spellbound taking this in so they're people that you also have to be very aware of that it's, it would be easy to twist them the wrong way but i don't don't think any of us do that i'm very hopeful for these youngsters i love taking them around and i think it sort of bounces off there's days sometimes i can go in there when i feel oh dear i don't really feel like being here today pick up the school all the littleies around me um, and uh, chattering away and telling me about their grandparents and all these sorts of things. And I just turn around. I pick up from them as much as they do from me. So I, yeah, I
1: see a lot of hope for our beautiful country and, and the future. You have a remarkable story, Alastair. Thank you for your service. We are grateful. And thank you for sharing your story with me today. Thank you very much, Alex. If you enjoyed my conversation with Alastair Bridges, please consider leaving us a five star rating in your podcast app. If you enjoyed Alastair's stories about the Australian SAS troops in Vietnam, you can jump back to season two and listen to the two part interview with a former SAS trooper, number 18, Don Barnby, volume one and volume two. Don's talk with Thomas Kay is an unmissable conversation with a phantom of the jungle. Find this podcast online. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life On the Line Podcast, and on Twitter at L-O-T-L-Pod. Email us at podcast at LifeOnTheLinePodcast.com. Visit our website, www.LifeOnTheLinePodcast.com and on the website, sign up to our email newsletter. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workoven. Thanks for listening and lest we forget.